Our scripture reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the Lord's word. Isn't it uh, it's great having Paul read the writings of Paul? I love it. Uh, Galatians chapter 1. That's where we'll be at this morning. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. And as you turn there, I want you to think about the person in your life who you think, uh, who you've seen a change. You've seen something different about them. You've seen a transformation in them. Maybe when they meet Jesus, you say, well, wow, they're, they're a lot kinder than they were before. They're a lot nicer. Maybe that person is you. Think about the the life that you have seen transformed by God's grace. We're going to see this morning how Paul's life was changed by the grace of God. How Paul experienced a radically different uh, trajectory than what he had previously been on. And what he is doing in these introductory words to the book of to, to the churches in Galatia is he is defending his authority as God's messenger. In other words, why believe Paul? 
Well, I believe the gospel that he is proclaiming. In chapter one, he says, uh, this is the true gospel and all other gospels are fake. Why believe him? Why believe that he is true? What, what, what Paul is doing is he is defending his trustworthiness as the messenger. This is something that, was, that is continuing on from verse one. If you look how Paul begins this letter, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's going to pick up that argument in our text for today. He is wanting us to see why trust me. So what we're going to do is we're going to see the broad strokes of the argument that he's making. We're going to understand the big picture of what he is trying to get across. In other words, the why he's saying it. And then we'll dive into the what of what he is saying. Why is he saying this? He's saying this because he wants the Galatians to trust him. Verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's saying, uh, I didn't get this from any, any person around me. I got it from Jesus. Got it straight from him. Paul is not concerned with us thinking, oh, well, Paul is so amazing, we should trust him. He wants us to trust his message, and that's why he's defending himself as the messenger. He wants us to trust that his message of the gospel, that is salvation through Christ alone, that you don't need to adopt all of these other practices. In fact, to do so, to add on all these other things, is to distort the only true gospel. He wants us to believe that, and so in order to do that, he's saying, right, I got it from God. You should trust me. Now, he mentions here that uh, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he, he's saying that he was given this directly from Christ. And that's a story that is told in Acts chapter 9. Some of you might be familiar with it. And I think Paul knew the Galatians were familiar with it. Because in verse 17, he mentions returning again to Damascus. So it seems like Paul thought the Galatians knew why he was in Damascus in the first place. You say, well, why was he in Damascus? Acts chapter 9 tells us that story. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's heading there, and the reason he's heading there is because he's going to persecute the Christians who are there. Paul sought out permission that he could go and hunt them down and drag them out of their homes and throw them in prison, or worse, kill them. And so he's heading there, and what happens is as he's on the road there, there's this bright light shining forth from heaven, and Paul is thrown to the ground, and he, he's left blind, and he hears a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, it was his name, why are you persecuting me? And he's a religious man, so he asks, who are you, Lord? And the response from heaven said this, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's the event that transformed his life. It changed the trajectory. He was heading to Damascus to persecute the Christians, and when he got to Damascus, he wound up preaching the gospel. He was a changed man. And so that's the event Paul is referring to here, and he continues his autobiographical address here in verse 16. So jump down there, verse 16. He's talking about the God who is pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And when that happened, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. So Paul's telling us this account, and the reason why he is doing so is because he wants us to believe him that he got this from God. So, so notice first, Paul was the one who was persecuting the believers. He was the one who was seeking them out, trying to kill them and hunt them down. So he, he was not interested in learning from the apostles or from being persuaded by them. If he got close enough to listen to them, he would throw them in jail or kill them. But then God saved him through a miraculous revelation of his son, Jesus. And after that, Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And he makes a point to say, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I didn't do that. What did he do instead? I went into Arabia before returning to Damascus. So he makes it a particular point to say, I didn't go to Jerusalem to consult with others. I went off into Arabia. What was he doing there? Well, there's a lot of uh, theories we don't know for sure. My take is he was probably preaching the gospel and learning more about Christ as he was there. Then after returning to Damascus, he says three years passed from the time of his conversion to the time where he actually made it to Jerusalem. Three years passed. And when he does go to Jerusalem, he spends 15 days with Peter. He's referred to here as Cephas. That's his name in Aramaic. So he spends 15 days with Peter. And the language would suggest that what, uh, what Paul was wanting to do is kind of learn everything he could about probably what it was like to live with the incarnate Christ as Peter did. Peter was as close as anybody to him. But there's two elements of this that highlight the point Paul's trying to make. First of all, uh, this happened after three years. It wasn't right away. It wasn't immediate. Three years later, three years have passed. And then he says, notice the comparison, three years versus 15 days. 1,000 days versus 15 of them. He's wanting to make a point. I didn't get this from the apostles. I didn't get the, the, the gospel I'm preaching to you from Peter. I didn't get this message from Jerusalem. I got it from God. And when I went to Jerusalem, they affirmed that I was actually preaching the same gospel they were. That's what he is arguing. And then after he leaves Jerusalem, he sees Peter and then he sees James too. And I, I kind of picture it like this. You know, he went to see Peter, it sounds like, and kind of stayed with him 15 days. And then he says, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And it's almost like he's saying, oh, well, you know what? Uh, it might've been like, you know, you pass him in the hallway and say, hey, James, how are you doing? And then he's like, oh, wait, I probably should put that down. Otherwise you're going to say, no, 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 you saw James too. So he's saying, no, no, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. I've told you everything that happened. I was with Peter for 15 days and I also saw James. And then he went back home. He went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And then 14 years later, he would be in Jerusalem again. So 14 years after his conversion, he would wind up in Jerusalem again. We'll look at that in chapter two. So Paul is making this clear. I did not get this from men, but he is also walking a tightrope here because on the one hand, he wants you to know, I was not getting this from the people in Jerusalem. But on the other hand, he wants you to know, I'm not preaching a gospel different than the people in Jerusalem, right? So Paul is kind of trying to, to tow both of these lines and we'll see how he does that later on in the letter in chapter two. But what, we want, what he wants us to see is, he is preaching the same gospel as them, but he did not get it from them. That's his point. That's his argument. And that's why we should believe what he is saying. You know, I don't think we're lacking for any gospel messages in our day. 
Everybody has a good news that they're trying to sell, a good news that they are proclaiming. Maybe it's about how to live healthier, about how to live longer, about how to live better. Maybe there's a good news about what will make you happy, what will bring joy and meaning and purpose to your life. There is a sense in which all the advertisers on TV are always trying to sell you a good news, that if you just had this, your life would be so much better. If you just got this, then you would be complete. If you just got this, that would fill the, the thing that you were lacking. So we talk a lot about good news messages, gospel messages, if you will. But what's interesting is we rarely talk about the basis by which we should believe them. We rarely talk about why believe that, why don't believe that. Because for most of us in our day and age, the only reason needed is it sounded good to me. It was, I deemed it acceptable, and therefore it must be good. If our, if our subjective experiences of it are good, then it is good. But when it comes to religion, think about how terrifying of a prospect that really is. That my standing before the God of the universe is based on my subjective feelings about how I could come to him. We need God to speak to us, and he has in his word. And so that's what Paul is wanting to get forth. See, what happens is he wants, to, he wants us to realize that he's, uh, he's preaching the same gospel the apostles are, but he's not getting it from them, such that he would even rebuke one of the apostles when they're out of step with it. That happens in chapter two. We'll get there in a few weeks. But what happens is uh, Paul and Peter again, uh, they're kind of hanging out, and all of a sudden Peter starts living out of step with the gospel, and Paul rebukes him for it. Paul's on, on the same level. He's on the same standing as Peter. They both are apostles called by Christ, given the message of the gospel to proclaim to the nations. And so Paul rebukes Peter when he's out of step with it, which, by the way, brings us to an interesting prospect, and I won't preach that sermon before we get it, but it is notable that in chapter one, the language Paul uses is, uh, really, if someone comes preaching a different gospel, let them be accursed. Let them be damned. And then when Peter is out of step with it, Paul rebukes him. He doesn't let it slide, but he doesn't resort to that same kind of saying, well, Peter, you're a heretic. And I think it's interesting for us to realize then that just because someone's life is out of step with the message they are proclaiming does not make that message any less true. It is not based on our subjective experiences or uh, our, our uh, lives. It is based on the message of God and what is true. And I say that because what we are going to uh, see this morning is the importance of our lives, our testimonies, bearing witness to the gospel. It is important for us to see that it must be in step with it. It is well said that the way that we live our lives will be a testimony to the truthfulness of our message, either for good or for bad. But may it never be said that our testimonies or our stories is itself the gospel message. And the fact that we live out of step with it does not for a moment negate the truthfulness of it. See, we all live out of step with the gospel from time to time. If we live perfectly in, in, in step with what we are preaching, we are preaching a message that is far too low. But friends, that's done nothing to change the message itself. 
So uh, you know, ours is an age of deconversion stories becoming increasingly popular and stories of notable abusive pastors. Uh, and I want you to know, friends, that if you profess faith in Christ, the way that you live your life will reflect on the gospel you proclaim. And that if you make shipwreck of your faith, if you live in a way that is out of step with the gospel, you will cause great harm to those around you. So let that spur you on all the more to holiness. But I also want you to know, there, there might be some of you here who are saying, well, the person that I look to, the person I respected, they've kind of walked away from Christ. I realize, wait, they're not the person I thought they were. And so you're wondering, does that, should I just give up on this Jesus thing? Maybe it's not really working. I want you to know that the truthfulness of the gospel message does not rest in how imperfect Christians model it, but in Jesus Christ. As Matt Chandler has said, the other 11 apostles did not stop following Jesus because of Judas. The gospel is true, and our lives should be a powerful testimony and witness to it. That's the message Paul is getting forth. That's the example we see him give here. And as he gives his almost autobiographical address, we will see uh, what Paul was saved from, what he was saved by, and what he was saved to. We'll walk through his, uh, his story here. First, what he was saved from. Paul was saved from his former way of living. He was saved from his former way of living. Look at verse 13 again. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So he is saying, this is how I used to live. And he's giving us a few characteristics of what that looked like. Firstly, Paul was defined by Judaism. He was defined by it. Look at what he says. He says, uh, you've heard of my former life. That former life was in Judaism. That's, that's who I once was. That's who I used to be. That was my former identity. But that's not true of me anymore. He was marked and defined by this in a way that he no longer is. When Paul was saved, he moved from being first and foremost in Judaism to being in Christ, which is a major theme that plays out all throughout his writings. Which, by the way, I think makes sense that this is a major theme for Paul because remember the uh, encounter that he had on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up and says, uh, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Jesus so identifies himself with his church that he says to hate my church is to hate me. To love my church is to love me. To persecute my church is to persecute me. Is it any wonder then why Paul talks so often about union with Christ when Christ so identifies himself with his church? That's Paul's new identity. It has changed when he encounters the risen Christ and so too is ours. We are not who we once were. We were messed up sinners and we are still messed up sinners, yes. But we are redeemed by grace, transformed by the God who, jumping back up to verse four, uh, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. There's a change that comes. There's a transformation that comes. There's a new standing with God, a new identity. Which is why I think it's mostly unhelpful when Christians 
uh, align themselves most strongly with their former identities after coming to Christ. I'll give you an example of it. Uh, more and more today you hear uh, people labeling themselves as a gay Christian. Now, there's a lot of ambiguity to what they mean by that, which is partly why it's unhelpful. But even beyond that, nowhere in the Bible are we told to associate with our inclinations or temptations or sins or struggles or our former way of living, but to associate with our standing in Christ. Christians are defined by something new. Paul says, my former way of life in Judaism, that's not who he is anymore. And there are specific aspects of what he means by this. Because the second thing we see is not only was Paul defined by it, Paul was a defender of Judaism. He continues on in verse 13 saying, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, he wouldn't have recognized it as the church of God at the time. At the time, he would have seen his quest as a noble one. He was the valiant culture warrior who was seeking to eradicate this false and dangerous belief that was spreading around. And so he persecuted the church. And he did so violently. When the apostle Stephen was killed for his faith, the Bible tells us this, that Saul, or Paul, he approved of his execution. And then there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. A chapter later, the book of Acts tells us, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, Paul was widely known by the church in Jerusalem, but not for good reasons. That's further evidence by after he comes to faith in Christ, the book of Acts says he went to say hi to the apostles and they wouldn't let him in because they thought he was faking it. It was really there to arrest them. He was well known. They knew who he was, but they also knew enough to know that when you see him coming, you were to turn and run the other way because he was the one that was going in and ravaging the church. That's the language used there, ravaging the church, dragging off men and women to prison, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In our own passage, he describes it saying, I did so violently and I was trying to destroy it. He didn't just give some pushback. He was seeking to eradicate what he viewed as a false gospel. We pray for the persecuted church around the world because still today there are people who are meeting in secret and who are at risk of being dragged from their homes and thrown in jail and killed for their faith in Christ. And Paul was the one doing that. Paul was the one perpetrating that. Paul was the one approving that. Paul was the one seeking out permission to go and arrest and kill Christians. And so I'm going to guess that most of us, if not all of us in this room, would have written Paul off as a lost cause. There's no way that guy's coming to faith. We would have prayed, Lord, stop him. But how many of us would have prayed, Lord, save him? We would have thought, yeah, he's he's way out there. But God has other plans. And let that be an encouragement to you. Because maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm too far gone from God. Too far gone from his grace. I've messed up too much. I've sinned too much. I'm too broken. 
Well, Paul says this in another letter. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. This is why God showed me mercy that in me as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, the reason God saved me is to be a message to you about God's patience towards sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if he could save a sinner like Paul, he can save a sinner like you. Marvel at God's patience toward you. The invitation we talked about earlier to come is still open to each one of us today. Believe in Christ. You will find God ready to embrace you with open arms and to forgive you of your sins. You are not too far gone from the grace of God. And this means too, don't stop praying for those who you have been praying for for years and are wondering, will they ever believe? It does take a sovereign miracle of God to save a a, a human being. But it's a miracle that he delights in performing. He did it for Paul. He did it for so many of us. And so take heart that he can do it again. Keep praying for your son or your daughter, for your grandchild, for your father or your mother, for your spouse, whoever that is that you're saying, I'm praying and praying and praying. God has seen worse sinners before and God has saved worse sinners before. So take heart, friend, that if that's you, you say, I'm too far gone, look at Paul and marvel at God's patience even toward you today. And if that's a friend of yours that you say, I've been praying for them, take heart. Because God, if he can save Paul, he can save any of us. So keep praying even if they're hardened in their ways because so too was Paul. Paul was not only defined by Judaism, he was not only devoted to it, he was a, uh, he was not only a defender of it, he was devoted to it. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. See, Paul was as good of a Jew as you could be. If you had expected anybody to come to the churches in Galatia preaching a message that you have to adopt the Jewish regulations and laws and, and be circumcised, it was Paul. If you'd expected anybody to be preaching that, it would have been this guy. He was the rising star of the faith. He studied under the best of rabbis. He was zealous in his adherence to the faith. But zeal does not save you. Paul was convinced and confident he was right. He zealously pursued it. He did all the right things. He said all the right things. And he looks now in Galatians and realizes that I was under God's curse. I was not saved. Zeal does not save you. Excitement does not save you. Confidence does not save you. Christ saves you in him alone. It is not, the grip, it is not your grip on him that saves. It is his grip on you. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object on whom your faith rests. Faith in the wrong thing, no matter how sincere or how passionate, will not save. But even the faintest faith in Jesus Christ alone will lead to eternal life. But we realize something. And it's that this problem runs a lot deeper than we really realized. Because we refuse to put our faith in Jesus. 
We don't see his glory or his beauty. We don't trust his word. We don't want him. We don't think we need him. The reality is, left to our own devices, the best thing that we can come up with is to work harder and to do better and to be more sincere. But that won't get us to God. That'll get us just where Paul was, in need of a savior, but not knowing it. Paul certainly wasn't seeking Jesus. He thought Jesus was a false Messiah who had deceived people and was dead in the tomb. He certainly wasn't taking the apostles seriously. He thought we should kill them just like they killed Jesus. And he certainly wasn't wondering about this whole Christianity thing. He was convinced that he was right. But praise God that God doesn't listen to us when we say, I don't need you. I don't want you. God doesn't just show up like a meek and mild stranger, kind of gives a knock at the door and said, hey, do you want me? No. There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks for God. God shows up and he kicks in the door and he says, here I am. I've come to rescue you. That's what he did with Paul. That's what he's done with us. We see what Paul was saved by was the sovereign grace of God. He was saved by the sovereign grace of God. So verse 15, in light of who he was, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. That's God's grace to Paul. Look at the transformation that has come in his life. Paul was entrenched in his ways. He thought he was right. And then he encountered the Messiah whom he thought was a liar and everything had changed. Paul saw clearly what he had previously been blinded to. He loved the one whom he had previously hated. And he preached the message that he had once tried to snuff out. And it was all because of the grace of God. It's not something Paul was seeking, not something he chose. It was God who chose Paul according to his sovereign purposes. He writes of the one who had set me apart before I was born. Literally, the language he uses is, uh, who set me apart from my mother's womb. It's kind of language used elsewhere, referring to God's call on his people. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of that. The servant in Isaiah 49 spoke of that. It was said of Jacob in Romans 9, that very thing, that in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Is there any clearer evidence that salvation is not based on anything you or I do than the fact that God chooses us from the, before we were even born in our mother's wombs? But even beyond that, the Bible tells us God chose us before the world existed. Ephesians, Paul says this, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well has it been said that God is the hound of heaven who chases down rebels and saves them by his grace. So marvel at the wonder of God choosing you before the world was made, forming you in your mother's womb and saving you by the beauty of his son, Jesus. Marvel at his grace to you and realize he has not left, after doing all that, he has not left the decisive action up to you and me. It is God who saves. And God called Paul by his grace. God called Paul by his grace. It is all of grace and only ever all of grace. Paul says, he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, verse 15. Now, look at Paul's life, his biography, and try to figure out what is it about him that makes him worth saving? What is, was it his hatred of the true God, Jesus Christ? 
Was it his steadfast commitment to kill and destroy God's people? Was it his zealous commitment to a lie that could not save him? It was none of that. Paul was not deserving of God's grace, but God lavished it upon him, freely given. We must realize that there is nothing in us that warrants saving, that God would be perfectly just to condemn us in our sins. You say, well, he didn't even give me a chance. Yes, he did. And he would be perfectly just to condemn us. But he has chosen to lavish his grace upon us in Christ. See, this is undeserved favor that, that uh, we could never earn, thus it would not be grace. Ephesians 1, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Romans 3, and you are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 11, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Paul didn't choose this or deserve it, but God chose him before the foundation of the world to lavish his grace upon him and to save him in Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's true of you and I as well. See, what can happen is sometimes in our Christian circles, we have the tendency to uh, so uh, celebrate and highlight those radical testimonies of this person was hooked on drugs and they were living on the street and they're doing all these things and then God saved them and, and praise God, right? Yeah, praise God for that. But then others of us are like, well, you know, I, I don't even really remember what it was like to live without Christ. And so I guess uh, this is kind of just boring or whatever. No, no, no. Friends, here's your testimony. You were dead and God raised you to life by a work of his spirit, bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ. God saved you. God chose you before the world began to bring you to him. He brought you to him by grace through faith in Christ who loved you and died for you that you would be his and live forever with him. That is your testimony. Don't ever think that's boring. It's the greatest miracle that's ever been performed. God bringing people from death to life. And God does this by opening our hearts to see and to savor his son Jesus as glorious. Look at what Paul says next in verse 16. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. God captivated Paul by his son. God was pleased to reveal Jesus the son to Paul. Don't think of this as some big grudging thing where God's like, oh, well, I guess I got to save him now. No, God was pleased to do this. God takes great pleasure in the creative miracle of revealing his son to his people. And when God does this, Paul refers to it elsewhere as having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you. On the road to Damascus, Paul is rendered blind. And what happens is when he regains his sight, scales fall off of his eyes and he can see again. And it's a physical picture of what happens spiritually. That he was blind, but now he can see. We all walk around and we don't know that we need glasses. We think, hey, I can see the world just fine myself. And then God shows up and corrects our vision. And all of a sudden, now we can see what we could not see before. Now we can see the beauty of Christ. Now we can see that he is the all-satisfying treasure of our souls. 
We couldn't see it before. And the reason why is 2 Corinthians 4 says that in the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But it goes on to say that God, who set let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you seen this Jesus? And I'm not just asking if you know about him living in Ashland, Ohio. It's hard not to. You know that he's real. You know that he lived and died. He said a lot of good things. Many people follow him as their Lord and Savior. No, no, I'm asking, have you seen him as he really is? As the Savior of your soul? The greatest joy of your heart? The only way to heaven? The Lord of all the universe? It takes a supernatural miracle on par with the creation of the universe for this to happen. And this is a miracle God performs every day of opening the eyes of our heart to see his son is glorious. And if what I'm describing to you say, I'm not sure I've seen Jesus like that. Plead with God that he would open the eyes of your heart to see him as he really is. And take heart that God says, uh, all who come to him, all who believe in him, he will not cast out. This is a miracle God delights in doing. So, so pray, plead that God would open your eyes to see Jesus as he really is. God holds up his son, Jesus, the one who took our place, died for our sins, and brings us to God and is alive today. He says, look at him. Believe in him. Love him. It's what he did with Paul. It's what he did with me. It's what he's done with so many of you. And it's what he can still do with you as well. There is nothing that gives God more pleasure than pointing to his son and seeing his people come to delight in and glorify him. And that's what we're saved to. See, sometimes we think, oh, well, uh, justified, I'm made right with God. There's the end of the story. No, 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 that's just the beginning of a glorious new story that will continue on forever and ever. And God saves us and gives us a purpose to live for him. And it's the same purpose that he gave to Paul. What Paul was saved to was preaching the gospel for the glory of God. And that's the same reason you and I are saved as well, to proclaim the gospel to those around us all to God's glory. Because what happened is when Paul encountered Christ, his life was changed. His life was transformed. It was taken in a totally different direction than he ever would have imagined it. Paul was saved to proclaim the gospel, and so too are you. Verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Do you grasp the irony, by the way, of what's happening here? This is the guy who was uh, defending Judaism, saying this Jesus is a false Messiah. He was zealous to 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 preserve their special standing with God. Not to mention God all throughout the Old Testament was saying his plan through his people was to bless the Gentiles and bring them into the fold. Paul says, no, 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 uh, you need to embrace, uh, you need to basically become a Jew in order to be saved, in order to uh, become a believer. And now what's he saying? Now this is the one going to the churches in Galatia and defending against that. He's defending against the very message he would have preached. Later on uh, in verse 23, uh, they said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he wants to try to destroy. The persecutor has become the preacher. 
Paul was saved to proclaim this gospel. And they thought the reason why he was doing that was because he was just trying to please a man. He had acquiesced to the whims of the people around him. And okay, fine, I'll just go along with what you're saying. Verse, that's why he says verse 10, by the way. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. They were apparently coming to him and saying, you're just trying to earn favor with those people. And so you're dropping some of these things that you really need to be preaching. No, no, no. See, friends, Paul preaching this gospel was not the sign that he had been broken down by people, but that he, that he had been chased down by God. His life was changed. It was transformed. It was made new. The one who was previously hunting down Christians has now become one of them. The one who previously thought Jesus was a false Messiah has now pledged his life to serve him. The one who previously sought above all else to preserve Judaism now preaches you don't need to be a Jew to be saved. The one who previously persecuted Christians has now become himself a persecuted Christian. Paul was saved that he would preach the gospel to sinners in need of grace. And he was given a particular apostolic call, but in general, this is a call given to you and I when we are saved as well. We are saved and put on mission to proclaim the gospel to those around us, to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. This news is not just to be believed not just to be enjoyed, but to be heralded to all those around us. So you're saved to proclaim the gospel and you are also saved to be a witness to God's grace. To be a witness to God's grace. Look at verse 22. Paul was beginning to get a reputation in the churches in the area. He says in verse 22, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So they hadn't met him yet, but they were hearing about him. I'm sure they had heard about him before. They had heard about how this was the one who was uh, roaming around trying to seek out Christians to throw them in jail. And now they're hearing a different story about him. They're hearing about his life has been changed. Paul was no longer living according to his former way of life. Paul's life was the best sermon illustration he ever had. He could preach the gospel and say, you want a picture of what I'm describing to you? Here I am. Paul's life was a powerful testimony to what he was describing. Friend, your testimony is not the gospel. Sometimes we say, share your story. Well, that's not the same thing as sharing the gospel. Your testimony is not the gospel but your life and your testimony can be a powerful witness to the trustworthiness of that gospel. Paul's life was changed and a changed life is a powerful apologetic to those around us. Some of you, I know you've talked to me and you've said, um, well, I've messed up a lot. I've sinned a lot. My kids are grown and out of the house and man, I wish I could have that time back. I didn't raise them like I wanted to. What hope is there for me now? I've said to them, I've said, uh, your kids are probably the ones in best position to see your sin. But they also might be the ones best positioned to see the change in your life that has come through Christ. Never underestimate what God can do with a repentant sinner whose life is transformed by grace. Maybe some of you are saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty young. I don't have a whole 
track record of sin behind me. And I would say, yeah, you do. You just don't realize it. Maybe some of you are older here and you're saying, most of my life is behind me and I see all this sin and I see all the struggles and I just wish I could, I could have that back, but never underestimate what God can do in the coming years. Say, my life has been transformed by God. It's a powerful apologetic to those around you. Maybe particularly to those who know you and saw the way you were before and said, something's different about you now. I'm incredibly encouraged by so many brothers and sisters whom we've never met, but we hear about the, the, the grace that has saved them. We hear about the Apostle Paul, who is saved from being a religious and zealous opponent of Christ to becoming a servant and a missionary. I'm encouraged by Augustine, who is saved from a sex-crazed lifestyle of hedonistic pleasure to know and love God above all else. I'm encouraged by Martin Luther, who, though he was a monk, hated God, because he knew God was just, but didn't see any way to be made right with him until God opened his eyes through his word and he became saved. I'm encouraged by Charles Spurgeon. He wasn't sure about this whole God thing when he was a teenager, and he just so happened by a snowstorm sent of God to be in the wrong church at the right time, and the least eloquent preacher imaginable called him to believe, and he did. I'm encouraged by John Piper, who was saved at such a young age God has saved me from that. I'm encouraged by Jackie Hill Perry, who was living as a lesbian, not wanting anything to do with God until she believed the Bible's true when it says, I stand guilty in my sins. And if it's true there, then it must also be true when it says, Christ is full of grace and ready to forgive. Friends, we hear about these stories of God's grace at work in people's lives, and it's an encouragement because a life lived in pursuit of the God who captivates your heart will be a powerful testimony to those around you, just like it was with Paul. And we think, well, uh, you know, some people look at the church and say, uh, you're just a bunch of messed up sinners. Guilty. Think of a story Mark Dever tells. And so a relative came to him and said, you know, my assessment of the church is just a brood of vipers. He says, interesting, why do you say that? And she goes on to describe um, some of the, the ways she had seen Christians not living in step with the gospel they proclaimed. And he responded and said, you know what? I, I, I mostly agree with your assessment. Uh, here's the one difference. We're all vipers and the ones in the church are the ones who know it and know that they need a savior. And then he looked at her and said, and there's always room for one more to slither on in. That's the hope that we have to offer. We know we're messed up. We know we're sinners. We know we stand guilty before God. That's why we need Christ. And when your life demonstrates that reality, when your life demonstrates a dependence on God and his grace rather than your efforts or your works or how good you are, that's what the world around us needs. Because in all of this, Paul was saved to the glory of God and so too are you. You are saved to God's glory. It's the great end behind all that God does and it was the purpose for which he saved Paul and the purpose for which he saved you. Because when these people around Paul hear about what God has done in his life, look what they say, verse 24, Paul says, and they glorified God because of me. The end result is not that my name would be made great. It's not that I would look so great. Oh, wow, Josh is so much of a nicer person now. No, no, no. The end result is that God would be made great, that God would get all the glory that God would look great in saving me, that God would get all the praise in freeing me, that God would get all the glory in rescuing me. 
because God began his work in us before we ever wanted him. He chose us before we would ever choose him. God lavished his grace upon us without us deserving it for a moment. And he continues to lavish his grace upon us day after day. And he holds us fast in his love, secure in Christ until he brings us home and forever after that. It is all a work of God from beginning to end. And that means it's all to God's glory and praise from beginning to end. When we live for man's praise, we are robbing God of the glory that he so rightly deserves. So dear friend, believe Paul because his message came from God, not from man. Believe Paul because his life was a powerful witness to God's redeeming grace. But believe Paul most of all because Jesus Christ is mighty to save to the uttermost all who would believe in him even today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace shown to us. Uh, there's no way we could earn it, no way we could deserve it. Um, we recognize that we are sinners and rebels before you. We look at Paul's former way of living and we say, well, Paul was running thinking he was righteous and in need of a savior. Some of us are in this very same spot. Some of us think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm religious. Not realizing that the uh, zeal that is misplaced will do us no good. Maybe others are in the opposite boat where they have never tried to be righteous for a moment in their lives and uh, they know they're a sinner. And Lord, I pray whether the person in this room is resting so much on their religious good works or whether they are uh, despondent in their uh, sinful mess of their life. Lord, I pray that you would open the, their eyes to see and savor the beauty of your son, Jesus. I pray for, the, pray for those of us who are, uh, who, who, who've opened our eyes to see that, that we would continue to be captivated by the beauty of your son, that we would live our lives transformed by your grace so that others around us see and wonder something's different about them, but not so that we would get the praise, not so that they would look at us and say, oh, wow, you're, you're so much better now, but that they would look at us and say, wow, God must be great. Lord, I pray that you would get all the praise and all the glory that you so rightly deserve from our lives. We pray this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.